What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Tori Reese is the co-founder of Trust Token. In this conversation, we discussed Mt. Gox, Silk Road, the challenges with tokenizing assets, drug decriminalization, criminal justice reform, financial literacy, and the automation of personal finance. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Are you curious about cryptocurrency and you don't know where to begin? I've got a great way for you to try. You can use Stormplay, a free and fun way to start earning in exchange for your time. That's right. You don't necessarily have to make a financial investment to begin. You can simply download, register, and then discover these micro tasks that they present you that meet your interest. And then you're rewarded with these storm bolts. The bolts are then converted and can be withdrawn into your favorite cryptocurrency, including the storm token, Ethereum, or my favorite Bitcoin. If you go and download the storm play app today, you can earn cryptocurrency rewards by playing new games and trying out cool new products. It's worth a try and it's a great way to get started. Remember, go check out Storm Play in the App Store today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. Here I am with Tori. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. We've got a lot to cover. Um, welcome. Thanks, my man. It's good to be here. Absolutely. All right, background. Where? Uh, who are you? Where do you come from? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Trust Token. Uh, you're, as you know, one of the investors in said company. Yes. Full disclaimer. Disclaimer. <laughs> we invested. Uh, disclaimer. We uh, um, we're based in San Francisco, and uh, we tokenize real-world assets. We got our start with the U.S. dollar, true USD, and since then have rolled out a series of other. Uh, currencies. Uh, but for myself, I guess how I got into crypto uh, dates back to 2011 and 2012. Early. Yeah, it was it was an interesting time. You know, it was uh, I was in college at the time, Northwestern, and um, I was uh, I was one of those early customers of Silk Road. And, you know, it was during those sketchy days where you would be sending cashier's checks to, you know, random addresses in China and things like that to load an account at Mt. Gox. And during that period, I also got into the white paper and, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I didn't have any money to really invest, but it was like I would trickle invest over kind of the trailing mm-hmm. years and kind of went all in in uh, 2013. Okay. So in 2011, 2012, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I think everyone's heard of Mt. Gox. They know, hey, there was this big issue. Some people understand, some people don't. But let's talk about the user experience of like how you could buy Bitcoin, right? You yeah. could obviously mine it back then, um, but buying it is not like, hey, let me just go sign up for a Coinbase account and like hook up my bank and now I own Bitcoin. It was uh, very full of friction and it was uh, frankly not easy, right? And, and so just like describe like what you would have to do the different steps to actually get Bitcoin. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what's funny is it actually gives, it's an exercise in uh, what a lot of I guess monetary experiences or financial experiences are like for people in the third world today, mm-hmm. where things are very 
uh, very manual. Uh, there's a lot of steps involved and a lot of room for human error. Uh, it was literally a process of, you know, you go find a local bank of a bank of a uh, yeah. You go find a local bank branch mm -hmm. and you get a cashier's check made out for a fixed amount of money that you're going to be mailing to them. Then they would give you an address and you you then you would either send a wire or send the cashier's check to just uh, what you know what is effectively an anonymous account, right? Which is the bank of of Mount Gox at the time. Um, and then you'd wait. You'd have to wait for them to receive your wire. It might be two, three days, or you'd wait for them to receive your cashier's check. And then like magic, quote unquote, like four days later, you see your your account balance. And credit. you would just see that now you have X number of Bitcoin in your account. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. it was all Bitcoin, right? In it was just kind Bitcoin. of pre-2013. Yeah. 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 And uh, and so then once you get it on Mt. Gox, if you wanted to use it on Silk Road, how did you go from Mt. Gox to Silk Road? Yeah. So so that was a process. So Mt. Gox was an exchange. So you could you know trade spot with the US yep. dollar. Um, but if you actually wanted to get it to Silk Road, then you have to, you know, first off, got to get the tour browser mm -hmm. figure out how to how to set that up and, and protect your privacy uh, or so you thought then you create your account on on Silk Road mm -hmm. and you would have to then uh, you take your address you'd go to do a withdrawal you have to verify your identity with Mt. Gox which that takes another few days then you would send a withdrawal request to Mt. Gox to then send it send the Bitcoin to load an account on Silk Road and then that would kind of give you a got it so there. basically you tell Mt. Gox hey I want to take my Bitcoin off of your platform I want you to send it to this wallet address on a different platform they yeah. obviously could figure out that it was silk road but exactly. they were just sending it from one digital wallet address to another digital wallet right. address yeah. okay got it and so uh when you signed up for silk road we and i don't think we've talked to anybody on the podcast about silk road specifically um you sign up for like a user account like here's my real name here's my last name here's my username or it was it was just usernames Got so it. Okay. so it was no no real names um and you you know i mean you can use it there's there's tons of innocuous things on the silk road like i think it's been turned into kind of a big legend today in terms of you know what was going on there in terms of oh there was human trafficking and drugs yep. and to be honest like the early days of the silk road that was maybe some dark corner of it but the majority of it was uh you know people could transact i mean there were things like fake IDs or weed. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also just actually, it, there was like just a lot of e-commerce mm -hmm. and a lot of things that might be restricted that they couldn't get shipped to, let's say the UK or the US. What were the like non-vice stuff, right? So take out the drugs, take out like all the, the fake IDs, like all that kind of stuff. Like what were the the kind of more traditional e-commerce yeah. products? There was actually a lot of like memorabilia and oh, there's also a lot of like banned books, like mm. weird stuff like that. Like in certain countries where um, they wouldn't be able to buy, you know, certain media mm -hmm. or information. Like there was actually a lot of that saying like, you know, free the information yep. and you could buy that all on, on the Silk Road. So um, it's interesting because it's an exercise in anti-censorship. And so, uh, you know, whether you were in China or India, you know, the United States, uh, you had access to to all this material. And obviously there's the vice centric stuff, mm -hmm. but then there's also just this uh, more censored information. Yeah. And, and a lot stuff of shared like ethos with Bitcoin, obviously. Time. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. And, and so uh, as you're getting more and more involved with Bitcoin through Silk Road, et cetera, uh, was there a feeling at the time that like, oh, Bitcoin is going to become this huge thing? Or was it literally the same thing as, you know, people today, they go and they use their Starbucks credits or their Amazon. It was just the means of exchange and they didn't really kind of have foresight into how big it would become. 
everyone that I interacted with, um, we, we were just using it as kind of medium of exchange. Yeah. It was more just like, we liked the idea that it was anonymous or, you know, felt at the time yeah. anonymous, more anonymous, more than anonymous US dollars. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, it, it, it really, because of the user experience, like the UX was so bad that it was so hard to imagine it becoming mainstream in any way. At that time, it was just kind of like, wow, this is such a pain in the ass. Like, why would anyone want to use this? Mm-hmm. Oh, but the privacy is great, right? Mm-hmm. So so that was like, I think the initial hook and that's why it appealed to those markets. Um, but it was really when I started to see some of the early infrastructure popping up like Coinbase, where, you know, that was where in 2013, when I when I was doubling down 2013, uh, yeah, that was when it was, um, it was, you know, it was through Coinbase. And I was like, whoa, Silicon Valley is getting into the game. And like, you know, things are changing. Yeah. It's becoming more real. And I think when you see the infrastructure, you start to see, oh, I'm going to be able to take fiat and not have to go get the cashier's check. Right. That's right. Oh, I'm going to be able to actually like get it back without having to try to track somebody down in China. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So it makes, makes uh, sense there. Um, and then, so you've gone from kind of early days of Bitcoin, Silk Road, like really, you know, what, what I like to think of as uh, some of the initial product market fit of this technology with people who said, look, I want to use it for the anonymity or the pseudonymity. I want to use it because payment processors can't shut it down, like all of that. To today, uh, with Trust Token, you guys are now looking at how do we take every you know stock, bond, currency, and commodity over time and digitize them, right? Give them similar attributes or properties that Bitcoin shares. Uh, just talk a little bit about kind of why settle on that as a thesis and kind of where you guys have gotten so far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the way that I think about it uh, is if you if you look at sort of the traditional payment infrastructure uh, that banks rely on or and governments rely on uh, there, there were, you know, early on, there was the idea of correspondent banking, the idea that banks would just have accounts with each other and then they could settle liabilities and credits with each other. And that was kind of how they would, quote unquote, move money. But there was still a lot of counterparty risk in that because mm-hmm. banks, fa- you know, would fail all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also a liquidity problem because, you know, if it was a large enough transfer, uh, you know, you'd have a lot of money that you owe out to other banks and things like that. So there's a real liquidity crunch. And so that was solved with the introduction of, you know, deferred net settlement systems. And that's mm-hmm. like today, ACH, you know, the automated clearinghouse mm-hmm. and uh, in Euro one in Europe and really every country or region is kind of cobbled together their own deferred net settlement mm-hmm. clearinghouse. And what they would do is instead of actually doing uh, a transfer for every single uh transaction, they would settle up at some set time and they would do the net transactions. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, if you would send me money, but then, you know, net, at both banks, you know, there were so many businesses and individuals transacting with each other that the actual net amounts that would need to be transferred was a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. And so that solved a lot of the problems, um, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. So then the the kind of the solution that was introduced was, you know, the central bank and this idea of we're going to now have what's called a real time gross settlement mm-hmm. layer. And, and that's kind of like, OK, well, everyone will just have an account with this central bank and then we can settle in real time. Uh, and we'll actually settle gross amounts. And what's wild is if you look at Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin is just a global real-time gross settlement layer. Yep. So so we had already seen we that. We forget that, out. right? Yeah. Everyone always thinks of Bitcoin as the asset in which you hold, but the network is uh, probably one of the largest in the world, right? I mean, That's MasterCard, right. Visa are bigger, but it's bigger than Venmo, it's bigger than Apple Pay, it's bigger than all these other ones. Um, and so there's somebody's using it. Totally. And what's crazy is actually, so everyone you just mentioned, like Venmo and PayPal and mm-hmm. uh, all those guys are actually deferred net settlement. And so what allows them to be so fast is 
you know, the, the money is not actually moving. The money is held mm-hmm. in, you know, a single account or they'll just net settle between various accounts they hold in different countries. Same with like TransferWise and things like that. Um, so that, there's actually a lot of disadvantages from a deferred net settlement network to Bitcoin's, you know, real-time growth settlement. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is, you know, to your point, it's like there are trade-offs, but like the reason it's slower and the reason, I mean, that's for security, but it's also because they're doing real time gross mm-hmm. settlement. Like every single transaction can't be duplicated. You're removing counterparty risk and it, it's, it's fundamentally a better system. It's just, there's trade-offs. Absolutely. No, that makes sense. And so you guys started with uh, us dollars, right? And you created true USD. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, being an investor, it's always fun to tell the story of like, you start with zero transaction volume, right? Uh, and it's now grown into the third largest, second largest, depending on how you look at it. Um, stable coin in mm-hmm. the entire ecosystem. Talk a little bit about, you know, why start with the us dollar and how you guys went from, you know, kind of zero to hero, if you will, yeah. um, in, in another trajectory here. Sure. Yeah. So we uh, we now do about three billion dollars in thirty day, like trailing thirty day volume. Mm-hmm. So people are really using it, and it's really exciting, obviously, to mm-hmm. build a product that people are getting a lot of utility out of. Uh, you know, this the the, uh, the, tra- the process, like the thinking process, was okay. If Bitcoin is this massive real time growth settlement network, how do we apply that same sort of technology, which is a global? real-time growth settlement network to traditional currencies because mm-hmm. that would be really valuable because mm-hmm. even today it's still a mess there's fedwire there's chaps there's you know there's so many competing real-time growth settlement networks that and none of them work well together that's why it's so expensive inefficient and slow to move money in traditional banking system mm-hmm. so we looked at the US dollar and we're like well this is clearly the most well understood financial asset or financial product in the world mm-hmm. right so it's like if we tokenize that you don't have to explain to someone what a US dollar is mm-hmm. uh, and not only that, but we knew it would have all the advantages. We, we built on Ethereum, um, but it have all the advantages that you that you see displayed in, in Bitcoin. Yep. Uh, and so it, it was very much a situation where uh, we built it, and you know, at the time it was you know it was five five of us, six of us. Um, you know, this was early. We launched in March of 2018, and we launched on Bitrix, and then you know, shortly after when we listed on Binance. The, the world was ready because Tether had really fumbled the ball. Like they mm-hmm. had lost users trust in so many ways that uh, we got a lot of adoption very quickly and, mm-hmm. and things just started taking off after that. Got it. And, and so as this thing's grown, you guys have added other assets, right? Maybe talk about the other currencies that you've added uh, and then we can get into a big one that you didn't add and, and why you did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, since then, we've we've recently launched Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, uh, GBP, you know, British pound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're we're preparing we are going to be launching hong kong dollar uh we're working on japanese yen Mm -hmm. we're working on korean won uh and as well as some south american currencies uh, that we haven't publicly announced yet. Uh, and really our, our logic there is there's a lot of second order effects or, and you know possibilities when you have all of these fiat currencies mm-hmm. running on a single global settlement layer yep. uh, that you can do some really incredible things, um, mm-hmm. for both for individuals, for businesses, uh, in terms of how they move money and removing, like truly moving, removing the middleman. What would be an example? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, we have some real world examples. For example, there's uh, businesses in Argentina that are doing commerce, let's say, with uh, you know other businesses in in Europe or in Asia, and they have suppliers that they have to pay, uh, and or they have to receive payments for for products that they ship out, mm-hmm. and they're taking a haircut 
of, I mean, it can, it can range, but I'm not exaggerating when I say 10 to 30% just to move the money. Oh, I, I literally <laughs> tweeted uh, about a week ago. Uh, I went and I uh, was in a store and I saw a MoneyGram kiosk. And I went up to the MoneyGram kiosk and I was kind of joking around at first. I was like, oh, this will be a funny tweet. Uh, but I started pushing all the buttons and essentially had got right to the checkout page of sending $100 from New York to California. So all within one country, $12.50 fee. Jesus. Right? On yeah. top of the $100. Yeah. And so that's a intra-country fee of sending U.S. dollars from one location to another. I can't imagine what it would have been if I said I want to send new, you know, from New York to Argentina or New York yeah. to Asia or somewhere, right? Like, it, it's pretty incredible how um, egregious the fee schedules of these uh, these uh, companies are. Yeah, and, and it's because they can afford to charge huge fees. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, we need to move money, and you know, fortunately, the the human coordination problem that has led to the inefficiencies in how banks moving move money uh, has created this real arbitrage for private enterprise to step in and say, well, we can move it more efficiently than banks. These guys are, you know, years behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take our cut. Now, what's crazy is if you look at what's possible, any transaction on Ethereum today costs one cent. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how big it is. So mm-hmm. I can send you $10 million anywhere in the world and it's going to cost one cent. I can also send $100 and it's going to cost you one cent. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's wild. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's on a technology that has really spread globally. So there's developers and there's businesses and individuals building on, you know, on, on blockchains or specifically Ethereum or Bitcoin uh, that really they don't speak the same language they never met each other mm-hmm. but it's this incredible human coordination effort where we've all standardized yep. on a couple like core technologies you didn't do the euro why <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're, we're we're working on the euro so so we've been we've been chasing the euro for for a while now mm-hmm. uh there's a ton of demand for the euro mm-hmm. uh, which is ironic given that you know it's zero to negative interest rates right mm-hmm. now um but they have some pretty intense uh, requirements for what's called an e-money license, which is what mm-hmm. you need to, to move money, uh, transmit money in, in Europe uh, that include performing KYC on every single person that touches your token. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, here in the U.S., like we perform it on the first hop, like the person making the purchase. But once they go and they have a transaction or they send it to someone, that's not really our responsibility. There's no mm-hmm. way for us to track that. I mean, we're not mm-hmm. surveilling that. Um the, the difference is in, in Europe, I, and I, I think this is going to really kill a lot of innovation there, you have to follow it every single hop. Well, it's not just follow it. You have to KYC and AML every single person who receives it. It's Yeah, that's right. And it's 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 a massive surveillance effort. Mm-hmm. It's also a massive burden from a cost perspective mm-hmm. on all the payment service providers there. Um, but ironically, it actually creates a huge black market. That's why mm-hmm. there's so much money laundering there. That's also why there's so much uh, kind of cash transactions and sort of under the table transactions is because it 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 pays a lot better to be a criminal there than in places where it's really efficient, where mm-hmm. you can move money affordably. Most of the latest uh, banking money laundering crimes have occurred in Europe, right? That's where, right. Uh, you know, the big one, I think, I forget the exact numbers at this point, but I think it's like $200 billion laundered through one single uh, branch in Estonia. It's right? crazy. I mean, it's just the, the numbers are so large that it's uh, it's quite overwhelming, actually. Right. Um, all right. So as you guys are doing this, what uh, what comes next? Once you get outside the currencies, anything there that, uh, that you guys are looking at? 
Totally. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we've made a commitment since very early on. Um, we made, we make a few of what we call kind of timeless bets. These are things where regardless of what happens in the space, like this is kind of how we want to operate. One of those was making the commitment to, um, work with regulators and kind of follow the law, protect our users. Like you'd be, you'd be shocked. You. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but th- th- that's one commitment. The other has been, uh, you know, we've made a commitment that, uh, we're not going to marry ourselves too closely to any one technology and that we're going to kind of let the market and let our users kind of show us where the greatest pains are Mm -hmm. and what we found most recently is to to your earlier questions around global payments we see that as today one of the largest opportunities Mm -hmm. uh, with the most inefficiency the most user pain uh, for cash you know cash to cash remittances Mm -hmm. which makes up still about it's something like 90 percent of the global remittance market is still all of this cash to cash Mm -hmm. we're working on uh and exploring solutions there as well as solutions between SMEs and enterprise businesses and how they move money. So you can think about all these tokenized currencies as literally just tools in our toolbox. Like they're just products that it's not in and of itself, not the solution. Mm -hmm. The solution is now the second layer of of intellectual property and technology that we're building Mm -hmm. to help address these, these global payment problems. Makes sense. Um, Speaking of laws, uh, you're from Colorado yeah, and uh, Colorado recently uh, began to decriminalize um, certain chemical compounds that uh, I think have been misunderstood or uh, just not addressed on a national basis. Maybe talk a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, actually, I, and, and I'll caveat all this. You're not an expert necessarily, but, <laughs> but, but you're from Colorado and I know that you at least know what's going on. So we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Not an expert. Um, the yeah, I tweeted about this the other day, actually. Uh, the the this was just passed fresh uh, legislation in Colorado. Colorado is really kind of taking the the stance of they want to be the leaders when it comes to forward, you know, progressive legislation around uh, drugs and, and, you know, substance. I mean, really, it's it's a reclassification of uh, drugs in the United States, which has to happen, in my opinion. But uh, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, mm-hmm. was just decriminalized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny because I actually talked to my parents about this, like right after it happened. And they're both like, oh, yeah, yeah, we voted for that. And I was like, what? Because, I mean, my parents are, you know, pretty straight edge. Not the people you would expect are like, oh, yeah, what, let's go, uh, let's go vote for the magic <laughs> mushrooms. Yeah. Like, you know, no alcohol. They don't do any, yeah. like no substances in the house growing up. They're yep. just nothing, right? Very clean. Um, but the difference is it seems there's been a real shift there where in Colorado, um, you know, people are taking the approach. A lot of people have experienced it empirically, right? Mm-hmm. So they've, they've either taken psychedelics or, you know, they've had negative experiences, let's say with alcohol. So they're very mm-hmm. jaded around like what culture might tell you is, yep. the, you know, the right substances to consume versus what their real world, real life experiences have taught them. And so I think it's great. You know, it's, it's going to, it has to happen at the state level before anything can happen at a federal level. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of progressive thought there. And, and the idea here, um, many of you know this that are listening, but, but just in case not, uh, decriminalize doesn't mean that it's legal. It simply just means that uh, they will not enforce the law that is currently on the books, That's, right? Which yeah. is a nuance, but it's an important nuance because it, it actually changes the incentive structure for law enforcement. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it, it's it's basically a, it's instructing local law enforcement to not make it a priority to enforce uh, or, or pursue charges against individuals, 
especially especially individuals. Not, I mean, it's a different to talk about criminal organizations mm-hmm. or dealers. That's that's a whole nother conversation, and those will still be you know prosecuted Pursued, for yeah. sure. Um, but individuals with you know personal amounts on on them will likely kind of be given a slap of the wrist and, and let go. Got it. And, and we've seen this now with uh, w- with marijuana, you know, cannabis. Uh, I think it's now we're at twenty two or twenty three states that have decriminalized uh, personal possession, right? And, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I think it's Baltimore. Uh, I could get this wrong, so don't quote me on it. But in the city of Baltimore, um, the like attorney general or, or whoever actually presses charges, uh, essentially there was no ruling. Like they just stopped pressing charges on personal possession of marijuana. Yeah. And I, if I have it right, I think the police officers continued to arrest people and then eventually realized like this is not worth the time because they're just going to get let go later. Um, and again, it's changing the incentive structure or changing the um, kind of top down direction uh, of where you know, taxpayers resources should be focused. And, and, and I think that your um, kind of caveat there of, Personal possession is very different than like if you are growing and distributing on a large scale illegal narcotics, you're likely to get in trouble. Yeah. Right. I don't care yeah. if it's decriminalized in uh, in your region or not. Um, what do you think has to happen for us to go from decriminalization to like actual true legalization? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, we're we're actually watching the playbook get written with with marijuana, mm-hmm. with cannabis. Um you know, I was in, you know, I, I grew up during the exact era in Colorado where marijuana was at the cusp <laughs> of being decriminalized and and not, not only made, you know, legal for medicinal, but also for recreational purposes. And so it was honestly, as a, as a kid, it was a very confusing environment to be in because, you know, the law was, you know, don't, don't consume marijuana. It's illegal. You're going to go to jail. Mm-hmm. But the, in practice, I was exposed to parents and families where they would say to their kids, I don't want you like drinking in our home or drinking and driving or anything like that. Oh, but if you want to go in the basement and smoke, it's fine. we're going to look the other way. And, yeah. and it was like this very mixed message of like these authority figures, like they were yeah. all condoning it and, and versus, you know, what the law actually reflected. And yeah. so I think that was actually very formative from my perspective, but I think it's also formative for when you look at the path that it's taken, it's like, first let's prove the safety and the efficacy in medicinal settings. And and I think for a lot of these substances, very much so, including, including psilocybin and, mm-hmm. and magic mushrooms, there are very real medicinal applications. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's being proven out in, at John Hopkins, at NYU, uh, it, you know, a lot of these um, very well-established programs through well-controlled, you know, studies that are being put in front of the FDA. And I think if they can first prove the efficacy, uh, then you can get the foot in the door, sort of broader exposure so that people can come to realize that what they were told in the 70s and 80s during the quote unquote war on drug was a war on drugs was actually complete bullshit right yeah. and it was very much politically driven well and, and to me um you know i've had i always consider myself incredibly lucky because where i sit uh on a daily basis i get to meet people who are devoting their lives to go and build just cool stuff right and and, and a lot of times it is technology driven but more and more it is um i'll just put it in kind of the healthcare bucket as well uh one of my partners jason williams uh built and sold a very large healthcare company and so we probably see a higher degree of that than most um and I've seen now two or three people pitch us on uh, this idea of microdosing, like the psychedelic psychedelic drugs um, being used to treat whether it's PTSD or other sorts of you know whether it's diseases, wh- wh- however you want to categorize them. Um, but it is in controlled environments. It's done in a kind of prudent um, and very measured way. Uh, 
And from everything I can tell, it works, right? And, and so I always kind of try to understand different sides of the story or, or the arguments. And from law enforcement, right, if you've kind of been raised or, or conditioned to believe the war on drugs story, makes sense. Those people should go to jail, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like, okay, that that's a, a very um, kind of straightforward, uh, easy to measure um, approach. Now, if you look at it from the patient, right, the person who's actually suffering from one of these things, if there's anything out there that can help them, they want it, right? Yeah. They want access to yeah. it. And, and it's not to abuse it. It is simply because, hey, I wake up every day and, and you know, I have PTSD. And if you can give me something to get rid of it, that's great. Then there's like what I'll call the the medicinal approach, right, or, or perspective, which is they actually struggle with what can have impact and what is the ethical ramifications, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are certain medical procedures or certain medicines around the world that were applied. There's data that suggests that they solve the problem. There's also the ethical question of should we provide that, right? <laughs> right like, right. you know, it, it, opioids is probably a great example of this. Where, like, yeah. yes, they do. They were effective. They, they do change your pain tolerance. Mm-hmm. But are there side effects that make it? Maybe we shouldn't, you know, just hand them out like candy. Yeah, probably. So where's the balance, <laughs> right? And and do you think that we'll run into that with some of the psychedelic stuff and cannabis? And, and we've got to kind of find where the boundaries are. Or are you more in the camp of like, you know, hey, you can die from drinking, but you can't die from smoking weed? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually think you raise a really good point, which is uh, I'm actually not one of those hardcore people that thinks, um, you know, oh, th- these substances are just inherently good. There's you know, nothing could go wrong, um, you know, whether it's LSD or psilocybin or, or even, you know, ketamine, which was recently uh, approved by the FDA for, for various treatments. Um, you know, I, I actually think and this is I had a really powerful conversation with a cousin of mine who's, who's a pediatrician. And um, I, I think, you know, when it comes to relationships with substances, it's like the thing you have to work on first is your relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the issue that we have is um, a lot of times like with these issues, they're made kind of black and white, like, oh, is the substance good or bad? Um, and it has nothing to do with that. It, it actually has to do with, you know, are we perpetuating a culture of education, of, you know, personal growth, self-care? Do we have safe spaces to kind of have these conversations? You know, if you look at Europe and like their attitude towards drinking, you're able to have an environment where you grow up drinking with your family, having wine with Mm -hmm. dinner and alcoholism is a lot, you know, is less rampant. I mean, there's obviously countries they drink a ton in Europe. I'm not saying they don't drink, but their relationship with themselves and with the substance is is very different. Mm -hmm. And I think in America, you know, we, we, you know, we're a country founded on Puritan values. And I think one of the Puritan values that has kind of been overplayed is one of complete abstinence or complete, you know, celibacy. Like in all these examples, um, it forces you to not deal with the relationship with yourself and kind of self-control, self-knowledge to then you can have a healthy relationship with people, substances, life experiences, etc. cetera. Um, so I, I think ironically, like I do think a lot of these substances are a thousand times safer and better for you and can have wide ranging benefits versus let's say alcohol um, or you know cigarettes or a lot of like socially sanctioned substances. Yep. Um, but I think it does need to be paired with a a societal level conversation around substance abuse. For that's, sure. That's very real. Well, and, and it's funny to hear you talk about this because um, I think we, we probably share a lot of the same views in terms of, um, you know, a binary world's almost never good, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just like, like you know, I, I, I get very nervous when people say, you know, X is good or bad, right? It's usually, well, if X is 
applied in some way, <laughs> right? Or, or certain people, or you know, whatever it is. Uh, so, so I think the nuance is always really important. Except with Bitcoin, um, maybe, right? Yeah, well, Bitcoin's great, so yeah. There, there's there's really no bad side, duh. Uh, um, uh, no, but I do think that um, you know you, you also similar to myself. Uh, you know, I think the uh, uh, the John McAfee's, the Mike Novogratz's, all these other people who have come on uh, the podcast. Uh, criminal reform, right, and, and kind of criminal justice has become this huge issue where uh, I think that. Um, the war on drugs really led to uh, kind of a desensitization of like we're putting humans in cages, right? <laughs> like just so we're clear, like that's what jail and prison is, right? Is like mm. we are literally confining somebody there. And so um, I, I usually go to the extreme and I say, you know, whether you believe in uh, kind of the criminal reform and everything, like let's just start with the most extreme case, right? Like should we put people in solitary confinement? I'm of the belief like that's actually really bad psychologically could be considered torture right and so like if you kind of go to the extreme and then you start walking yourself back you realize that like again there's no binary good or bad right like when people do bad things they should be punished when they don't do bad things then they should be okay but it's you know the question becomes what is the punishment right so maybe talk a little bit about kind of criminal reform and and, and kind of how that relates maybe to some of the um the, the decriminalization of drugs and, and all that yeah yeah criminal justice reform is something that i uh uh, I have a very personal relationship with, and uh, it's something I, I care about pretty deeply. Um, I, I actually, you know, I recommend to, you know, everyone that I ever, you know, talked about this subject. I mean, there's obviously a few great books, um, but there's a really great documentary on okay. Netflix called The 13th. The 13th. And the 13th. Okay. Yeah. Highly recommend I've never even heard of this before. Really powerful. And, uh, you know, the, really the, the concepts that are talked about in that movie is how the American... Uh, prison industrial complex uh, was, you know, has largely been a result of political motives that date back to, you know, uh, post Civil War, when we started to have suffrage, suffrage, and you know, you could, we were giving uh, African Americans and minorities the right to vote. Uh, there was another way to kind of have control over these minorities and over these other populations, and so it was very politically driven to create a, a lot of legislature and as well as a platform, you know, which Nixon coined, you know, the war on drugs. It's similar to, you know. To, a lot of what we're actually seeing today, where it's very easy to create a, a powerful, scary narrative uh, that is a veiled form of racism. Mm -hmm. And and you obviously have to follow through on a lot of the threats. Right. So it's saying like, oh, man, the biggest threat to America is drugs. And, you know, it was a very successful platform. And, and there was a lot going on during that era. Um, you know, I also I highly recommend people read uh, the electric uh yeah, the electric Kool-Aid acid tests. The electric yeah. Kool-Aid acid test? test. Yeah. Okay. Incredible book. book. Tom okay. Wolf, incredible journalist. Might be my second favorite after Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> We're going to get to Hunter <laughs> we'll get S. Thompson. To All right, hold yeah. on. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, you start to realize that um, these... There was a lot going on when these substances were really being discovered and popularized uh, in the United States and and abroad that kind of got really, really mixed in. And ironically, I actually think this this could very possibly happen with with crypto where new new technologies. Let's let's look at these drugs, let's say, as new technologies kind of get swept up in the zeitgeist of the time. And so, you know. Mar marijuana, LSD, psilocybin, like all these substances were just emerging, right? In the in the 60s and, and 70s. And so when they got caught up in this, in really what was a, I, I think a very racially driven um, 
you know, a war on keeping minorities from voting. Uh, you know, it, it, it was it, it was almost like we threw the, the baby out with the bathwater and we kind of came back with this blanket stance of just all drugs are bad and let's not take the time to understand them. And it was a lot of it, though, was was removing stripping people of their right to vote Mm -hmm. you know and if you look at the south and it also i mean the u.s represents five percent of the world population but we represent 25 percent of the global prison population it's crazy it's staggering it's absolutely nuts and 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 by the and not to interrupt you here but one of the things that um i've i don't know what the data is right Mm -hmm. but anecdotally uh the way that prisoners in America are treated, hmm. the uh, environments that they're put into, oh, the yeah. amount of uh, prisoner on prisoner violence, right? All, all of these things, um, the the uh, lack of uh, education and training for them to be set up for success when they leave. Oh, yeah. uh, we're really far behind in a lot of these categories, it seems like. Uh, so it's not just we put a lot of people in prison, the way that they're treated and then the lack of training to set them up for success. It's just not a good situation. Yeah. Yeah. People should check out Defy Ventures, which is working to address just that problem, which mm-hmm. is like re-entry. And, and that, that's really what it should be about. It should be about rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. It should be about education. Uh, instead, like we're labeling people as criminals. Also, the fact that it's privatized, like the majority of the prison system is privatized, they're literally using it as subsidized labor, right? Mm-hmm. So they're also charging the government. They're getting paid to hold people in prison. So again, when you talk about alignment incentives, it could not be worse alignment of incentives than they're paid to put prisoners away. And, and beyond that, they then get their free labor to, to you know, whether it's produce license plates or, mm-hmm. or do, you know, man, tons of manual labor. Um, For pennies on the dollar. Oh, yeah. 12 cents an hour. Yep. Like it, it's it's completely inhumane. And uh, I I think, you know, there there needs to be massive, massive changes to to fix this system. And a lot of it has to happen through legislation. Mm-hmm. But I actually think a lot of it also has to do with um, reforming drug laws. And like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these nonviolent criminals who are in jail for, you know, possessing crack or, or you know, having multiple drug offenses, um, you know, that <laughs> they're in on these insane mandatory minimum mm-hmm. sentences mm-hmm. of, you know, 10 to 15 years. Uh, and, you know, I I kind of was forced to face that directly, you know, around college time myself. And mm-hmm. when you come to see the system up close, you can kind of see all of its scars and all of its, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the kind of terrible aspects to it. And I think the reason why it's not part of too many mainstream conversations is because m- most people don't ever get exposed to that system. Yeah. Like the minorities that do get exposed are in it yep. and don't have a voice. Well, and, and part of what I've seen um, is you get uh, a bifurcation, right? You get people who uh, have never been exposed and therefore they, you couldn't expect them to be educated about it, right? They just never had the opportunity to cross it. And, and if they were, they, they actually may be interested in it. And then you get people who have experienced it, but as you described earlier, they're labeled as criminals. And so their voice, whether they have one or not, is drastically uh, softened by, oh, you're a criminal, right? And there's very few people who I think have been able to um, be thrust into the experience and the environment of, I'm not talking about, hey, you know, you got drunk and you got arrested in college and, and you went to the local jail cell, sobered up and let you go. I'm talking about like legitimate prison, mm-hmm. right? When somebody goes through that experience uh it almost feels like the people who make it out on the other side and have a voice to talk about criminal justice reform etc uh they had to do something so spectacular 
right and, and really spectacularly bad mm-hmm. to get there in the first place mm-hmm. that people will listen not because they went through the experience but because of what they did to actually go right so right. like you know the jordan belforts of the world etc <laughs> right of like yeah. you know it's celebritized or, or made sexy kind of what got them there right and, yeah. and if you even look at you know like a mike milken would be another great example right where um you know very very well-known guy very wealthy guy you know gets into uh, kind of a bad situation, right? Ends up going to jail, comes out, has the personal network, has kind of the the foundation to stand on and, and say, hey, look, you know, here's kind of who I am and, and what I want to do moving forward. That's not the average story, right? No, it's, the, the average story is the exact opposite, it feels yeah. like. Well, you don't hear the average story. Yep. And, and I mean, I think there are some people that are doing a lot. Um, Cut 50 is a great organization mm-hmm. that that's that's working on this. I would also suggest people check out an organization called Breakout. Breakout. Is, okay, what's that? Breakout's really dope. It's it's actually, so criminal justice reform is a component, but they're very much more just social impact driven. Mm-hmm. Started by a, a friend of mine, Michael Farber. Um, they do these, these urban conferences. You can think of like urban gatherings where they really take you deep on a specific city. So, I mean, and cities all around the U.S., like, you know, Oklahoma City, Chicago, Austin, I mean, you, you know, you name it, Atlanta. Uh, and they gather all sorts of movers and shakers. And, and we're not talking like tech or, or finance. Yep. I mean, it's it. there are those, t- those people who show up, but it's people who are passionate about these kind of like on the ground issues. Mm-hmm. And they kind of take a microscope uh, you know, to all these problems and they surface them along with all the beautiful components of like the music, the art, the culture, the food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what it takes. It, it takes to your point, like not many people have had to actually face it. So it's very easy to ignore problems that you've never that you that you don't know exist or Absolutely. that you only, you know, kind of, but only at arm's arm's length. Absolutely. All right. So hold on. Before we get into some of the details around this, uh, Tell the story of what happened in college so that everyone kind of understands the, the perspective that you're coming at this from. Yeah, for sure. So it's um, it's it's a difficult story to retell. It, it took me a couple years to kind of to, to own it. And, and and the one thing I'll say here is uh, it's obviously incredibly sensitive. And so it's important, I think, for people to hear this from your perspective. Right. I appreciate of like, that. Um, it, it's a. Uh, I have a lot of friends who've been through all kinds of different things, right? Some of it legally related, some of it regulatory related, et cetera. And uh, the devil's always in the details, <laughs> right? So like, I, I just kind of you tell us a story in your own words and then we can get into some of the ramifications, et cetera, of you know, why you believe the world or see the world in the, in the way that you do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and, and you know, I've, I actually have learned, I, I think one positive thing about, about this whole experience is like, you do learn there are, there are, Two types of people. There's the people who uh, who want to will give you a chance to kind of tell your side. They want to hear the truth, and then there's those who kind of just you know they write you off. They'll they, they don't even want to touch it, right? And and I think it's actually been net like a positive thing. It, it's almost like a, it's a great filter mechanism. It's the best right? filter. Like like <laughs> the people who uh, I don't even want to say don't care, but are open minded and and totally. uh, empathetic and or good listeners are usually the people you want to hang out with anyways. Yeah, (laughs) no, it's no, it's so true. And uh, so, you know, the the scene to set the scene, it was, you know, it's senior year. Uh, I went to Northwestern, which is in Evanston, Illinois. And uh, there's this student festival every year uh, that we that we hold called Dillo Day. And it's, you know, we bring in some pretty big acts. You know, they've had everyone from uh, Kanye and and like the uh, the college Lollapalooza. Exactly. A lot of Midwest 
school. Actually, a lot of colleges do this where they'll have like a one a one day like big student festival. And, uh, you know, we're we're a bunch of really nerdy kids that work our asses off all year, you know, round and, and burn the candle at both ends. And so it's kind of like a release at the very end of the school year. And uh, I was living at the time in uh, off campus housing mm-hmm. uh, with 14 guys in this just big, big old house. Jesus. And, yeah. <laughs> Those were the days I, I was living in a room the size of a closet, you know, sharing a, a bathroom with you know, five guys. I mean, this is this is college case. College. College. <laughs> and uh, you know, you 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 asked earlier about Bitcoin. Well, you know, so we this was the golden era of the Silk Road. And uh, you know, everyone in our household had kind of locked down jobs. And we wanted to kind of go out with a bang. And so we placed a, a group order, you know, just I, I'm not getting anyone's names involved in this. Just, you know, we, we placed a group order, ordered a couple different things, you know, some weed, uh, some LSD, et cetera. And uh, it, it was for the house's kind of, you know, house's consumption. And, uh, you know, you had to like stock the pantry, basically. We stocked the pantry. <laughs> we were hosting, you know, and look, this is <laughs> we own fully like we we explored these things. But, yeah. you know, we we were we were. Um, so we, we had this right for our house and um, the so the week before we get an inbound kind of text message from one of the friends of, of people outside the house saying, hey, you know, there's this kid who reached out to me. He was wondering uh, if you guys had any extra uh, MDMA. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, was it like ecstasy? Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he, he was wondering uh, if anyone had any extra. And so, you know, I didn't. But we sent out a message to kind of the, we had a group chat at the time and said, hey, does anyone have anything extra for this kid? And, you know, one of my friends said, oh, I got too much for me. And my girlfriend, happy to kind of give him some. So we connect, or, you know, we connected them. And uh, a few days later, uh, this is during reading week. So everyone's in the library, like 24 seven studying. Uh, the kid comes by and the kid is, you know, picking up uh so the text goes out, Hey, this kid's here. And the kid who, who was, you know, selling a bit of his portion, uh, was in the library. And so he's just like, Hey, can someone run up to my room, go grab it off my desk and, and give it to him. Yep. So went, went inside, got it. I was one of the only people home. So gave it to him, had this whole conversation with him. Like, Hey, you gotta be safe. I'm not even kidding you. Like we, we spoke for like 10, 10 15 minutes. Cause he was this younger Asian kid and uh, I wanted him to be okay. I gave him literally brave new world by Aldous Huxley. Which is- <laughs> <laughs> Another one of my favorite books. I'm like, hey, be safe out there, whatever. Um, you know, and uh, and he, you know, he takes off, and I don't really think anything of it. Um, a few days later, it's now the the day before this festival, and okay. we're having a big tailgate at our house. So I've yep. gone shopping for groceries, uh, and I'm I'm unloading my friend's punch bug with my friend mm-hmm. in front of our house, and we're taking like you know. The, the grocery bags out of the trunk and I see this SWAT van like parked around the corner of our house. I'm like, dang, they're really like stepping up the police enforcement for Dillo Day. Uh, and as I say that, like I see this stream of police officers carrying riot shields, shotguns, like the whole nine yards come streaming out towards our house. Wait, they're coming out of like the SWAT van? Out of like, the SWAT van, like shit. holding the shields. Like they go and keep in mind, this is a janky old house. There's no yeah, locks yeah, yeah. on the doors. We yeah, never yeah. locked it. I don't think anyone had a key. It's, it's, it's literally college, right? You you could walk in anybody's Literally. home. Yeah, yeah. They, they take a battering ram, bust the door down. They're they're running in with shotgun shotguns like drawn, like 
screaming and we're like seeing this all go down we're like holy shit and there's shit. people in the in the house like for this tailgate or it hadn't no, started no, this, yet this is the day before okay got so, it, got we're, it. so i pull out my phone i text everyone's like don't come back like don't come home <laughs> <laughs> don't come home there are police in the house and and then i i i wipe my phone i'm just yep. like i don't know what's going on i have no idea why they're here who they're after what's going on and my friend and i are standing there just like watching like you know frozen and one of the guys one of the police officers on the street sees us and he's like what's your names so you know we we each say our name and as I say my name, he comes running over, tackles me to the ground, gets like a boot on my chest and is and is like cuffing me. And and they're like, you're under arrest. You know, they take me up on the porch and yep. I'm sitting there in handcuffs and they're like uh, they're they're tearing apart the house. I mean, they've oh, got yeah, drug yeah. dogs in there. They're yep. tearing up the walls, like flipping mattresses. I mean, they're going crazy. So they proceed to search the whole house. Um, suffice it to say, you know, they find what you'd expect in the house of 14 senior guys, yep. you know, there's like some weed, some, you know, bong, like a mixture of, you know, different substances, you know, stuff alcohol. that is like more like recreational type. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, not like nothing in, in large quantities, but, yeah. but just, you know, you guys don't have bricks of cocaine no. hiding in the walls and, in the, <laughs> and, and somebody gets caught in the bathroom flushing it out of the toilet. Right? Exactly, right. Okay. No. So none of that, but they keep, so they, they, they keep coming to question me and they say like, tell us where the drugs are, like, tell us where the money is. And you know, I, I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to talk. I plead the fifth, like I yep. want to talk to my lawyer. Um, and long story short, you know, I'm sitting on the porch handcuffed for two hours while yep. they tear apart the house. Hands go numb. They bring people me are coming out. People are coming out of their houses like neighbors and oh, stuff. Yeah. And Everyone's yeah, like yep. gawking yep. what is going on. And, uh, you know, finally, uh, they take me inside and it, all the drugs are on the table. It, it, again, the like meager amounts. And they're like, all right, um, tell us who's like who belong like who this belongs to like which room is who so that we know like whose drugs are who yep. otherwise we're going to charge you with everything here yep and i'm like i do, it, do or die time <laughs> no i'm like i i'm pleading the fifth like i, I want to talk to my lawyer like you know that's not like that's not online i'm not going to name names it's not going to help anybody um and they say all right well, we're going to charge you with everything and so you know in the state of illinois possession even of like a single pill mm -hmm. uh, uh you know is is a felony count and so i was charged with five felonies or no sorry it was three felonies and two two misdemeanors mm -hmm. but the most severe misdemeanors um and each of those felony counts held a 15-year mandatory minimum sentence holy shit so i get you know thrown in, in the back of a squad car taken to evanston jail and Do you talk to the cop on the way oh yeah yeah oh yeah because like, what's that conversation like i mean I could just see they're in this frame of, you know, that they're just they're enforcing the law. Right. Yeah. And they're in this frame of like good guy, bad guy role playing. Yeah. But like this is their life. Right. Yep. And, um, and they so, just got a bad guy. And, and so they got a bad guy and they're doing they're the right celebrate. Thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And um, so they take him back to the station, fingerprint me, throw me in the cell, uh, in the cell, you know, take all my, uh, you know, shoestrings and belts and all that. Right. <laughs> and so I'm sitting in the cell and, you know, to be honest, I uh, I started going to the darkest place I've ever been. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like I, I had the year before lived in Israel and had gone there to kind of find myself and yep. started meditating, got really into Eastern psychology and, um, you know, had been at the happiest and most centered I ever been that senior year, you know, had actually for the most part, you know, been uh, definitely been in the best place, uh, you know, mentally uh, that I'd ever been. And yet, uh, you know, in that cell, I started the, the self-talk turned into like, 
maybe, you know, walking through all the possible outcomes, I'm like being a felon in the United States where I don't have the right to vote. I can't get housing. Mm-hmm. Like I, you can't get a job. Serious. I mean, you do. You are when you're a felon in the United States, you're subhuman. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's wrong. But that's just like the facts. And I knew that because I, you know, I had uh, done to sound so silly, but mock trial for all of high school to the, mm-hmm. to the level of like not competing in nationals and things. And so I, I had a pretty good sense of, you know, how our, our justice system works. And um, so long story short, I'm sitting there. Uh, I basically at the point where I'm like, hey, um, it probably would be better to go to sleep and not wake up than deal with you know, my family, the criminal yep. repercussions, jail for 45 years, da, 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 da. And I see these like these dark thoughts come in. And the the thing that I really credit completely to meditation and, and all that time I spent in Israel was this moment of, of clarity of like, this isn't who I am. This isn't my voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I jumped off the cot. I was sitting on the cot on the wall in the jail cell. I pulled the cot down to the floor. Mm-hmm. And again, this is like the cheesiest, most millennial thing ever. But I, I dropped down. I start doing yoga, like sun salutations no, and pushups. No I'm dead serious on the floor because I'm trying to get out of my head. I remember yep. I need to just get into my body and like yep. stop like hyperventilating. And so I, I calm down. I'm doing these sun salutations and these guards come running in yeah, like no. i'm not doing it for more than maybe two three minutes and they come dashing in and they're like get get up like what are you doing like put that back on the wall like they, they think i'm trying to hurt myself or doing something crazy whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so they have no idea what you know what the hell is going on they've never seen someone <laughs> busting out the sunset they're putting their boots on people's chest totally, they're not used totally. to the yoga <laughs> but the craziest thing is that that voice goes away right mm-hmm. so i'm i'm all of a sudden i'm i'm totally i'm like i'm happy i feel I feel everything's gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. And I say to them, hey, can I speak to the arresting officer? The mm-hmm. guy who's kind of leading the investigation. So they think I'm about to confess. So they, they go they go get him, maybe 30 minutes later he comes walking in. And the crazy thing that changed was I saw like all this like toxic fear and like all these negative emotions, the, the fear, the loathing, like hating our, you know, our government, hating the officers, hating all these people. I knew I needed to kind of flip that on its head for me to survive. Mm-hmm. And so it was ultimately, I knew the kind of, like when he came walking in and I looked at him, I saw him for the first, literally the first time. Cause even though I talked to this guy for, for hours as he's, you know, trying to question me and, and tear apart the house and everything. Um, but I saw him for what he was right. And what he is, which is he's, he's, a civil servant, which is like one of the hardest jobs you could ever ask for. You see the worst in society and, yep. you know, a lot of people hold it against you. And I saw like a guy who's just has to hold this frame, you know, of who I am uh, as a criminal and who he is as a savior, right? For him to go home and not, you know, beat his wife, let's say at the, at the end of the day, right? And and I, I saw that and, and I, I felt an incredible amount of, of empathy. And so when he came over, I just... Uh, you know, again, Colorado hippie here. Um, <laughs> I say to the guy, uh, listen, this isn't going to mean anything coming from me, I imagine, because you've probably already written me off as a criminal. Um, but I want you to know that whatever happens to me from, from here on out, where my life goes, everything, I don't hold you accountable. And I want you to know that I appreciate you. And I see, like, I really, I admire what you do. And you're just, you're following the law as it's written. And I don't want you to hold anything like I don't I don't want you to hold anything on my behalf and and I also want you to know that I love you and I said that I'm, I'm dead serious this, I say this to the guy in the cell he is and he's this stone face you know yeah. like we still wearing his flak vest bad like, boys bad boys bad boy. yeah. yeah like scrapped right scrapped like and 
And, you know, he just looks at me with this like disgust, like this weird, confused look. And he turns around, doesn't say a word, walks out. But the crazy, I felt so light. I'm like, this is great. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to get jacked. I'm going to read a ton of books. I'm going to meet really interesting people. It's going to be fun. It's like, you know, I don't have to worry about where my next meal comes from. So so I just all of a sudden had these stories of like, oh, you know, I'll get out of jail, move to Israel. Who cares if I'm Fallon? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Everything was fine. So. Fast forward the story, I get transferred to Cook County Penitentiary, which is somewhere you don't want to be. It's, it's one of the worst and most notorious prisons. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that's like one of the most popular places to go for the show Locked Up. It is terrible. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, you know, I was in a cell with something like 60 other men and I was the only white person in the cell, which I learned a lot. I learned so much I, and I, you know, I was there. There's no clocks on the walls, right? Yep. There's no windows. You have no idea what time it is. You're not yet you know, guilty, quote unquote, but you know, you're there, you're only referred to by a number that they write on your wrist, which as a Jew had a lot of, you know, crazy, uh, triggers for me, but they, you know, they, there's just a hole in the, in the floor where everyone's, you know, you piss and shit in front of everybody else. And, um, you're not, no one will talk to you or tell you what's going on. Right. You're just, you're, you're in this room. There's not even enough room for everyone to sit. So Mm -hmm. most people are either standing or kind of laying on the floor up against the walls. And, you know, you're there for, one day, two day, three day. It depends what day of the week and, you know, how things are getting sorted out on the other side. And inside everyone's there's there's violence, like in terms of people are like fighting each other. No, No, not in there. In there, everyone's kind of like, it's this us versus them feeling. So it's very much the sense of like, hey, we're in this together. Uh, And, you know, everyone's like, you know, what you in for? What boy? Like, and and there's all these conversations. And, but it was funny because like, as soon as I'd be like, oh yeah, three, three felonies. And they're like, respect. So, oh, you didn't just get drunk outside the bar and yeah, tell a cop that, uh, you know, he was stupid. Okay. Yeah, all right. You're, yeah. you're legit. <laughs> yeah. No, but you, you know, you, I saw all these people who were, this is just another, you know, this is just another trip, right? They, yeah, they do this. They've been here before. Every, oh yeah. my God. It's just part of their lives. Right. And there's other people who, you know, there's tons of insane stories around, you know, false accusations, domestic abuse, like all this stuff. Anyways, I, and, and that's a much longer story, but I just, it was very humanized. I talked with so many people. I mean, I'm a, I'm a talker, like you yep. tell. And, um, you know, so, and I end up getting out on bail. Uh, I'm not considered a flight risk, which again, a, a big part of that is the color of my skin and you know, where I go to school, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, but really the important part of the story How much is, was bail. You remember? So I, I had no, I didn't have to pay. So I was out on bail, but yep. it was $0. It was like dollars. Zero dollars. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, I get out of bail you know, suffice it to say, my parents had written me off. They're they're How like, excited are they right oh, now? man, they're like, you're, what are you, drug addict? You're crazy. Like, we're, we don't want to talk to you. We're disowning you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my brother was really there for me, and, and so my friends were. But um, th- this... What about the uh, the 14 guys that you lived with? What are, what are they doing? They, they were, it was, it actually really had a weird impact on my relationship with them. Because on some level, I think there was a lot of... Um, there was maybe a lot of guilt because I, I didn't name names. And yep. they, they asked, right? And there was plenty. I could have very easily done that. Yep. Um, and I took the fall for a lot of people. I mean, I definitely was, you know, I'm not free of blame. I mean, I was yep. I was going to, you know, consume substances, no question. But, um, but I definitely, you know, I was honorable in terms of I didn't want yep. to bring anyone else into it. Um, but I think there's a lot of difficult emotions in there. And so although they were really grateful and we hugged and had a really wonderful end to you know college together, um, I think it put kind of like a wall between us that I was never really able to um, break down again because there's yep. a lot of a lot of stuff there. And um, 
the, you know, they all went on to graduate. I was meanwhile, like facing trial at the school. So, you know, whether yeah. or not I was going to get my diploma as well as facing the criminal charges. And the and, school can almost be worse in some cases, right? Depending on oh, yeah. what happens in the criminal side of it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So four years, right. And all that debt and all that. And I was a week away from my diploma, right. From walking. And, uh, so I have this war on two fronts. Uh, I don't want this to draw on too long. This has already been a, a long story, but, uh, the, the, the real kind of uh, the, the miracle that kind of played out for me was I, you know, I started, so I got my background check from Microsoft where I started my, my first job after school. It came through the day before I was arrested. So wow. I, I went and I, I started work while I was still under trial in Chicago and I'm commuting between Minneapolis mm -hmm. where I'd never set foot in my entire life, uh, and Chicago where I'm, I'm on, you know, facing 45 years and, <laughs> and I'm terrified every day that they're going to work on windows 95. <laughs> Let me go fight 45 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I was, I thought every single day, I'm like, today's the day they're going to fire me. They're going to find out, you know, yeah. like this shit was, it was, you know, in the news and I'm like, they're going to find out it's inevitable. So I was just, I had the, you know, fear of God in me of like, yep. I'm going to be so good at my job that they can't fire me. Yep. And so that was the attitude I went into work every single day. It was like, I'm just going to crush this job. And on the other front, I'm, you know, my lawyer told me, and I, I got one of the best criminal defense lawyers in Chicago, but again, taking out loans to, to pay him. Um, and uh, I basically, he said to me, look, if this goes to trial, it's not a matter of if you go to jail, it's just how long you're mm -hmm. there for. Yep. Um, there's just no question. And um, so he's like, if you don't get a plea bargain. And so we went for the first pretrial hearing and, you know, the DA says, hey, this is open and closed. And by the way, I still don't know how, why am I arrested? What happened? Why was I the one that was yep. thrown here? And I, I didn't know after that first pretrial what had, what had happened. I got a guess. Yeah, right. I had a guess. I had a good guess. Um, but what I later found out, and so she she said, no, no deal, right? And yep. so- no, um, Didn't even offer one. Didn't even offer yep. one, right? And so we go to the second pretrial hearing, you know, that's, it's maybe three weeks, a month later. Um, and I find out in the meantime, through the through the uh, deposition and whatnot, that uh, the an anonymous, you know, a confidential informant mm -hmm. told them that I was a large drug dealer who had been selling to them for years and, mm -hmm. you know, was known, renowned in the area, yada, yada, yada. Like, and they had, so it ends up this, this kid, this Asian kid, you know, had been arrested a month earlier for, you know, he had mushrooms and weed and he was, he was actually dealing. And then to get out of his sentence, he went on this campaign. He, he was just trying to get any name he could possibly give to the police yep. and then whatever story they wanted to hear yep. to kind of get out of trouble himself. It's like the classic, classic, uh, classic story. Yep. Yeah. And so I didn't even, I'd never met this kid in my entire life. Yep. Never, you know, set eyes on him. And he had, you know, thrown, thrown me under the bus. Right. And, and he got off scot-free by the way, they dropped all charges against this guy. Um, but he, he wrote, you know, whatever the police officers wanted to hear. And so I'm up against, it's a, he said, he said <laughs> situation. And, uh, you know, the evidence is, look, there were, there's drugs and, and there's a written testimony and like a recorded transaction. I mean, like what else do you need? Right. So in they the eyes, did they have video? No, 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 oh, no, no video, no, yeah, but there, there were, you know, he went, but in he went in with yeah, the yeah. police, like, yep. meaning they were, they were the ones that gave him the money. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I basically had come to terms with like, this is it. Like I'm, I'm going to jail. Like it's, that's the, my, that's my reality. And, uh, I was trying to put my affairs in order, you know, um, the people that really stuck by me, like my close friends, like trying to, Hey, take, you know, take my stuff here, have this, like whatever. Here's I'm, my Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. I'm living out of a friend's parents' house in Minneapolis. Like I didn't want to have a lease that I'd have to break. You know, I, I wasn't, I had to get a car to get to work. Yep. I was borrowing a car. Like, and, um, 
And, you know, the I came in for the final pretrial hearing. And uh, so I flew back to Chicago. And this is for the testimony of the police officer. And he comes walking into the courtroom and I haven't seen him since I told him I love him. And he, he comes, he comes walking in and I jump up out of my seat. You know, I'm in my, my Sunday best, as they say for, for Corte. And, and I, you know, I jump and go walking up to him and I, I just, you know, I, I just put out my hand, I, I shake his hand. I look him straight in the eyes and say, you know, officer stone. It's so, so good for you to be here. Um, I hope you've been well and I really appreciate you, you being here today. Um, and, and that's it. Like, you know, nothing yeah, yeah. crazy, but I just, you know, really look at him and, and see him as a person the same way I did before. And he goes into the, he, you know, he's sequestered with the DA so they can review his testimony and whatnot. And he's out of the room for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And he comes back out of the, the sidebar and he comes walking past me and, and walks out of the courtroom. I'm like, Oh, he's going to take a piss. And she calls over my attorney. He goes off and five minutes later he comes running out and he's <laughs> like, I don't know what the fuck just happened but they're going to offer you a plea bargain. They're going to drop all the charges except for one possession charge. You plead guilty to that. You do your probation. You're done. You're cleared. Yep. You're completely cleared. And yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I was, I was crying. I was like, I, cause I literally, I was mentally, I was in prison. I was like already yep. like in that place, in that space. I'd been doing my research. I was like, I was okay with it. And, um, and so that man, I mean, again, I don't know what was said behind, behind closed doors, but, but I, I owe my life to him. But I think like the bigger story that, that I've taken away from it is, you know, it was a selfless act, but it was, it was, if I, if my skin were any other color or if yep. I was raised in any other type of environment, right? Yep. Like, where well, it's just there's so many people who are sitting in that seat ready, and what that they officer say is, walks in, fuck and, you, pig, right? I yeah. mean, that's what they say, right? Yeah. And, or and again, I sorry, I don't want to be stereotypical as well, yep. but but the point is like you know not everyone is gonna is going to treat like treat him on a human level, right? Well, and well, and whether they do or they don't, it probably doesn't even matter because right. he's not walking in there and nope. saying drop the charges. That's right. He he's viewing them as a criminal regardless. Like that's his frame. Mm -hmm. So for whatever, I unknowingly, you know, shifted his frame and he didn't see me as the person he wanted to put away for 45 years. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the thing is that I think in this country, if you fit that stereotype, if you're the type of person that he sees most days committing crimes, mm -hmm. you, you're in jail. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's just it's done. You're there. You're gone. And I was given a second chance and it had nothing to do with who I was as a person. You know, it was kind of like where I was born uh, and, you know, who I was born to and the opportunities that that were afforded to me. And uh, I it has completely changed my perspective on life. Uh, and. I, I, you know, I think it's that's what's shaped a lot of my views as well. Well, I think it's obvious when you get the exposure to how the system works, right? And you don't, it's almost, it's very similar to how I think about crypto, right? A lot of people in crypto saw the global financial crisis, but uh, they were just old enough to pay attention, just young enough where they actually didn't have their assets at risk. Yep. Um, and so they were educated by, you know, trial by fire type situation, mm -hmm. but weren't really burnt. Yeah. Uh, similar situation to you, right? Like you get to go through all the motions. You just don't pay the penalty on the back end. Totally. You get the indoctrination and now, you know, you have a very specific view of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll also say like, for what it's worth, um, for people that have been, in the, you know, in prison or have had difficult experiences in their life, um, you know, it, it it's only a mental barrier that's going to prevent you from, from, you know, doing your own thing. You know, like when I quit 
working and, you know, taking a salary and, and took a plunge as an entrepreneur, I was terrified that no one would back me because of like that story was Mm -hmm. in existence. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, there were plenty of VCs who wouldn't even take a meeting. Right. But what we talk, go back to what it means to have a filter. Um, the ones who did, they sat down and, and they led, they, I mean, almost every, it comes up in every job interview when I'm raising money, whatever, but the, 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 the people who really get it, Mm-hmm. They're going to ask and they're going to want to hear your story. Yep. And, you know, they'll say, you know, tell me, tell me your side and they'll, they'll understand you on a human level. Mm-hmm. And I think like, um, but the only thing that will stop you is, is fear. Right. So like if you're too afraid to take that initial plunge, you know, be self-authored in the sense of whether you want to start a business or, or help people or, you know, um, you know, be in, be in the spotlight or not, uh, you, you really have to, uh, be willing to kind of take that leap of faith and, and you'll find the right people. Like they'll be attracted to you. I, I completely agree. What led you uh, to switch gears here? So you, you actually spend time, I know, uh, going in and doing kind of uh, financial literacy training inside of uh, classrooms. What kind of led you to that and, and yeah. kind of talk a little bit about the work that you're doing there? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's ironically, it's actually somewhat intertwined with okay. the criminal justice component because it was it was almost born out of necessity. Personally, um, there's a uh, there's a pretty wild story that I, that I was referencing from, from college. And I don't know, you can tell me whether or not we actually have the time to get into it. Cause it's, it can be a long story, but the kind of outcome of that, uh, experience was I was in a pretty desperate situation personally, where I pretty much had to fend for myself. And, you know, I was under maybe $65,000 worth of student debt at the time, mm-hmm. you know, it was just fresh out of school. And, uh, you know, I, I basically had a choice, which was, you know, give up and and kind of be broken by the situation or take complete control Mm -hmm. of my life, my finances, the opportunity that I had uh, and, you know, dig myself out of that hole. Um, And, you know, I was kind of at that point hanging on sort of by a string. And so I I doubled down. I just Mm -hmm. went super I went super deep into, um, you know, personal finance, financial literacy, reading every book I could get my hands on, talking with people. My roommate was, you know, a financial advisor. So I got to take, <laughs> that all, helps. Yeah, I got to take all his practice tests while he was training for all of his, you know, series 65 and, and mm-hmm. all of his various, uh, registrations. And so, um, that was really a transformative period. And then after I was able to help myself and, you know, get out of debt, um, which I, which I managed to accomplish in, you know, 12 months. Mm-hmm. And then, and how then, do you do that? But like, oh, like, what's the secret? The secret is you don't have any, you don't have any fun that costs money. Yeah. <laughs> you just have a lot of discipline. It's it's yep. literally behavior change, right? Yeah. And it's a matter of like taking control of the money that's coming in and every single penny that goes out and mm-hmm. being really thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know I love working with people on this and it's really empowering. Like to a lot of people, this is like a scary concept that you mm-hmm. want to keep kind of at arms distance. Um, but I actually think as soon as you kind of given the tools you need and the knowledge you need, I've seen people's faces just light up and it, it changed like people literally make massive life changes after these courses. Cause they realize, wow, on the path I'm on right now, things are not going to end well, mm-hmm. or the path I'm on, I'm never going to get what I want. W- what would you say are like the one or two things that people do as you've talked to them that they do that if they just Stopped, right? So you said like fun, right? It, 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 like, well, no, no, don't, don't, I should not, please. Yeah, I do yeah, not yeah, ever. But, well, that's <laughs> I want you, I want you to, to yeah. like unpack that a little yeah. bit, right? Because it's not just, hey, don't no. live a life of fun. Oh, definitely it, not. It's a certain type of activities that fit in that that I'm assuming that oh, you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, so like, describe I, clarify, it I took it to an un, almost unhealthy extreme. Like I was, like I said, in a very difficult situation and I kind of did what I thought was necessary. It was, you know, means it was like a matter of survival at the time. Um, 
you know, thanks to all those kind of extenuating circumstances, it, it, what I tell people actually in these courses, you can have also, you can have every type of fun you want, but you need to understand the cost. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's not just that, but it's also making sure that all of the things that are actually important to you, like know what your life's priorities are and your goals are, make sure you've, you've automated your finances and so that you're paying yourself and you're taking care of all these things, um, that actually matter to you that are going to make a difference in your life. And then with what's left over, go do whatever the hell you want. Mm -hmm. Literally have a great time, Mm -hmm. but the automation is and like removing your decision making from the process is going to be the best decision you can make. And Ramit Sethi, I think, was one of the people that really helped push this forward with, you know, I will teach you to be rich, um, which sounds gimmicky, but it's an incredible book. And um, well, so here's one of the things no. that to me is so interesting. Right. Because um, I think this is uh, this is like a well-known financial trick that sounds stupid and because so simple nobody does it right which is like pay yourself first right and and it's this idea of uh it's kind of like a startup right i I always tell founders i don't care if you raise a million dollars five million or ten million you're gonna spend it in 18 months yeah (laughs) yeah like whatever's there it's gone in 18 months that's very true and so like (laughs) like trust me you should think about how much you know what are you gonna do in 18 months because you're gonna spend the money yeah um and and not because they don't want to do that it's just that that's just human nature that's just how it happens etc and so very similar to that, you're going to spend the money that you have sitting there in a discretionary account, right? Yep. No Most question. people don't have the discipline to save. Nope. And so it's almost protecting you from yourself and saying, look, when money comes in, whether through a salary, investments, whatever, immediately almost hide mm-hmm. a portion of it from yourself, yep. but put make sure that you are thoughtful and disciplined about where it goes and why you're putting it there. Oh, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even the, the, you know, some of the smartest, uh, you know, people that I've met, whether it's in Silicon Valley or, you know, in any of the places I've lived, whether, you know, it doesn't matter if you're working at Facebook or, you know, you're, you're working an hourly job. And, and I think the level of financial literacy tends to be the same and Mm -hmm. you're right. It's human nature, like the level of discipline, um, it, it, you know, whatever money's deposited in your account is going to be spent by the time your next paycheck comes. And that's kind of, that's, that's very much human nature. And then talk about how automation fits into that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think crypto actually has enormous promise in in this regard because, uh, you know, the levels of automation that are available to people today, they're actually so they're the best they've ever been. There's no question about that. However, it's still incredibly manual. It's pretty difficult and it takes, you know, it just takes time, like setting up automatic transfers, doing the math ahead of time. It's it's kludgy. Uh, it's there's not really there aren't very many elegant solutions. Uh, but what's crazy is a lot of that is because the bank's technologies, like your ability to quote unquote read write, uh, you know, to let's say your financial accounts, which is moving your own money around and and you know making if this then that type decision trees, things like that, just is impossible because they create this walled garden where where your money sits, uh, and it's not like it's not because they want to protect your funds. I mean, they obviously they they do, but it's more just that the uh, the mindset they're not technologists, right? They're financiers, and their best interests, their incentives are to keep all their money and and you know keep it in their you know in their accounts now in crypto um with it let's say a wallet address you know the technology is actually incredibly simple to automate what money goes where and in what percentages and and do that all via smart contract or through very easy interfaces it's really easy to interact with and so like Mm -hmm. if you have your money on a blockchain all of a sudden if you start thinking about wallet addresses as 
accounts or bank accounts, you know, people who are using TrueUSD today, we're their bank account, right? They're, they're holding it and effectively banking themselves, which is, again, another powerful mm-hmm. concept mm-hmm. Um, with a lot of ramifications. But it also means that you can actually build the, the perfect bank account with full automation where you're deciding what portion is going, let's say, towards, you know, my retirement, what's going towards my short term goals, my long term goals, um, you know, towards having fun. What type of investments do I want it going into? Uh, a lot of that can be it can be made at the point where when every time you get paid, all of your money goes exactly where it should and you don't have to make any decisions. And mm-hmm. I think like that would be the kind of, that's the ultimate level of, let's say, you know, personal finance is when all those decisions are made ahead of time and then you live your life. You go do what you're great at. It's funny because um, I had a Murad on uh, the podcast and um, you know he talked about this idea that not only are most people not great at personal finance, they are really bad at investing. They, you know, if you're, you know, use kind of the extreme example, if you're a school teacher and you teach, you know, history, the idea that you have to earn a salary and then you need to become educated on the stock market and bonds and currencies and commodities and how to build a portfolio and just all of these things is wild. It's crazy. Right? Like it's like, a lot to expect. Like, yeah. And, and it's just an aspect of personal finance that they have no exposure to, et cetera. And so he's really excited about this idea, uh, less automation and more just like Bitcoin as a store of value that could potentially steal market share back from other asset classes, right? So mm-hmm. real estate, art, all stuff. Uh, this may be one of the first times, um, in his opinion, where simply buying an asset and holding it ends up solving all of those investment decision uh, problems and can uh, help to preserve the value of your wealth. Yeah. And again, you can debate whether he's right or not, whatever, but, but I think it's a really interesting idea that goes in line with your idea of like automation of just like set it and forget it. Right. 100%. And then how do you end up in a place where you want to be? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, I think, crypto has a place in people's portfolios. I know you're on one end of the spectrum, you're on the hardcore end. And, you know, I think I think everyone gets to make the most important investment decision you'll ever make is your asset allocation. Mm-hmm. And it's really an expression of kind of your hypothesis about the way the world's going to play out. Right. And so most people don't actually have a well-informed hypothesis. They shouldn't make that decision. Right. There's some well-established guidelines that you can follow, um, like through, let's say a target date fund, something like that. But what's cool is to your point, it's like, uh, I think another element here is, uh, the access to investments. Like, you know, a lot of the technology that's coming about, uh, in, in crypto today, ironically has the most utility outside of the United States. And that's what we're finding also for our tokenized currency is it creates enormous value in, in places with capital controls, let's say like Korea or Argentina, or in places where you have unstable banking, uh, and you know, wild hyperinflation like Venezuela or Argentina. Mm -hmm. And I know that's been tossed around and, and bandied to the point where it's somewhat meaningless, but when it comes to actual access to basic financial services, uh, you know, we, we're, we're providing them still with fiat and I think with with Bitcoin. Uh, I think it's inc- it's incredibly promising and, and I think it's really exciting. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of um, currencies and, and uh, assets, uh, I know you've got some unique thoughts around uh, Tether and uh, <laughs> and regulators. Um, talk maybe a little bit about why um, you know, Tether may be one of the first assets or, or uh, projects where on a global basis, regulators really make an example of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that what was recently announced by the New York AG is sort of the 
in my mind, the death knell for Tether. Um, you know, we've we've known for the longest time that they were commingling, you know, their corporate funds with the escrowed funds behind Tether. What we didn't know uh, was that there was as large a shortfall. You know, 850 million is non-trivial. Um, but but the truth is that, like, I think regulators are actually taking a very a clear stance in the space and are starting to put out a lot of uh, clarifications around, you know, their positions and, and how what sort of licensing you need, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'll tell you that in, in most cases when, you know, there's this early Wild West type industry where everyone's going crazy, sort of like getting getting away with with everything. Uh, regulators take their time. They observe. They come in. But then they they bring the smack down yep. and, and they choose someone that they make an example of. And, you know, in my opinion, based on when, when I went and I read um, the, the the memo about the AG, uh, it, it, it's pretty intense. I mean, there are I think that they're out for blood and I think that uh, they're going to make an example of Tether just because there is, you know, easily identifiable criminal activity there. And, you know, the thing that scares me is like, I'm not just saying this as a competitor, because the thing that I worry about is like, there's a lot of people that stand to, you know, lose their hat. And it's by far the most liquid stable coin in the world, like far more so than ours. And there's 3 billion in circulation like that. That's going to have an incredible effect on the ecosystem at large. Uh, But I think you know, in general, this is this is how it goes, right? Like the regulators will come in, make an example of someone, scare the shit out of everybody else. And then the big boys who who already, let's say, I mean, most people don't know this, but like Google, Facebook, these guys all have actually all the licenses you could ever need. Yep. They already have MTLs in every state. They've got e-money. They've got, you know, MSBs. They're registered everywhere, right? It was a couple million dollars. Took a year or two. No big deal, right? Yep. They already did it. So I think a lot of the big boys then are going to be able to step in and sort of clean up what's left over and, and, you know, announce and launch their own solutions. Um, but, uh, I just, the, the key here is we need to make sure that we survive this period mm-hmm. and, and with the kind of reshuffling of who's at the table, uh, and then come out stronger. Makes, uh, makes sense to me. Uh, before I finish up rapid fire, what do you think is the uh, most important company in crypto? Most, Can't say yourself. Oh yeah. Definitely not us. I would say most, wow. Most important company in crypto. I'll say the Ethereum Foundation. Why? Uh, I think that they are running a uh, what is a quasi like techno religion, <laughs> and it's really easy to fuck up a religion. Like we mm-hmm. all of, actually, I, I would say something that get a lot of people to hate me. So let's just say there's 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 many sects of I Christianity. Have that on people. <laughs> there's many sects of Christianity, and not all of them turned out so well. So let's just say like in this case, like I'm really hoping for the best. What do you think is the most controversial thought you have in crypto? Like, what do you believe that everyone else disagrees with in crypto? Oh man, um, I think that uh, virtually every altcoin is going to. This isn't even. I guess this isn't controversial. Virtually every altcoin is going to go to zero. I think like, you know, <laughs> Bitcoin's going to be here to stay. This isn't controversial at all. Um, not, not in this room. Not it's at not. all. <laughs> I'm trying to think what what could possibly be controversial. I think like. Uh, I actually, I guess this is controversial to a lot of crypto people and it's given what we're doing, but I think, uh, that there's a real need for regulated projects in the space. And I think like ones that play nice with regulators and, uh, are willing to, um, you know, are willing to take measures to sort of, you know, open the kimono and, and, and I think not everything can be a crypto anarchist paradise. Um, but I think there's room for both. Yep. I think it's fair. Um, what would you say is the one regulation you would change or improve if you could? 
Uh, definitely. I, I, there's a, there was a legislation, um, that, that was, what's what needs to change is capital formation so i think um when you look at like a lot of the the current uh, securities regulations like reg d reg a plus uh, you know reg s uh i think those need to be wildly improved. I think it's doing everyone a disservice that only accredited investors can participate in most of these types of, you know, alternative fundraises. And I think um, it only hurts, uh, you know, the mom and pop investors that they can't participate. Uh, again, they still need to be educated. There still needs to be protections. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I think we need to really improve our, our securities laws. Makes sense. Most important book you've ever read. <sighs> That's really difficult. Um, most important book, I would actually have to say The Mind Illuminated. What is that? It is one of the, I mean, it's the most incredible book I've ever read. No, it, it's, it, <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's like, you know how they're in every subject on earth, like most people will maybe go to level one, level two. Um, and then there's those people who go, you know, become obsessed. And these are people I love, but that go to level 10, right. Or level nine, right. As close to level 10 as you can get. And the, in this book, it's basically, you're being taken on a journey in towards brain science and meditation, kind of the intersection of the two to level nine. And I think it's only this, it's a, it's a relatively recent book. And I think it's only because there just hasn't been people from the Western world with the knowledge and background that they have, who also have knowledge of the Eastern world and the translations of like a lot of this multi, you know, millennial old knowledge to kind of combine the two and then mm -hmm. actually put it into a book in a consumable manner. And then they accomplish that. And I think it is, uh, I'm going awesome. to go read this tonight. Dude, it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Sold. Yeah. Um, all right. Aliens. Real, not real. Believer. Definitely real. Why? No question. Why? I mean, it's, it's, it's Fermi's paradox. I mean, it's like, look, I think, uh, I'm going to ban Fermi's paradox as an <laughs> no, no. answer on this podcast. No, no, no. Here's fine. Here's my answer. All right. Here's my answer. Um, I think it would be the most, you know, self-centered, egocentric human bullshit to say, you know, we are the only sentient yeah. or not even sentient, just life forms in the universe. Now, I do think that there's a timing problem. I don't I can't say if there's aliens right now, um, but like, are there aliens you know, ever? Yeah, yeah ever or in, in the future, like or in the past? You know, yes. I think no question. Do you think that there's weirder stuff in space or in the ocean space? Really? I mean, I hope so, because that's that's that'd be way cooler. Yeah, that's why I think I, I actually think it's the ocean. Well, you know, space. Like, there's I mean, definitely life in the ocean. We know that for sure. There's some crazy shit. I mean, black holes, you know, supernova. I mean, I think there's just, there's some insanely weird shit. Like, if you think about it as just the, you know, the universe's largest experiment. And, you know, let's say non-anthropomorphized God is just out there fucking shit up. Um, you know, if we think that here on our little earth that we've got weirder shit at the bottom of the ocean. I think that's the same mistake we would make in saying like there are an alien. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to make my mission to go find some weird stuff in the ocean and bring it back. Dude, please do. All right. You could ask me one question to finish up. What, uh, what do you got? All right. Um, I want to hear, uh, if, if you could take on, you know, one quality of a person who you hate, you absolutely hate, uh, but this quality, like the quality that you admire the most in them, w what would that be? And who's the person, if you'll share that? Uh, it's a whole group of people. Let's hear it. Um, it is the, uh, what's the best way to 
categorize this group. Are you about it to is, say no coiners? It, no. it is the it is the people who uh, have a false sense of reality in that they believe things that are just so incredibly unlikely that uh, they take as fact. Um, I'm specifically talking about certain groups that most people in crypto I think would just say you guys are just trolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've come to find is they're not actually trolling, but they do believe that that shit coin is going to like take over Bitcoin, right? But what quality do you admire of theirs? So so their ability to completely detach from reality <laughs> is, uh, well, it's not even faith, right? It's because they actually, like, it's not like a, hey, I, I believe, like they, in their mind, they know. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's Certainty. like, like, yeah, like they, like they have a level of uh, confidence. Um, and, you know, if you look at some of the greatest entrepreneurs in the world, they have a very similar ability to detach from reality. Uh, the difference is um, they are not uh, participants or like fans uh, that detach from reality. Right. Like it's one thing to like, hey, like. If you're a New York Knicks fan, you can detach from reality and think that they're going to win the NBA championship. That's probably not going to happen for a long time, right? <laughs> but like, so you can be a fan. Yeah. It's different when you are the entrepreneur drive. Like, you know, uh, Elon's probably the best example of just yeah. like conviction. Yeah, just like I'm. I'm going. I, I believe that X can happen. I'm going to go do it. Right. And and what X is is so detached from reality that everyone else is like you're nuts. Uh, it does take a special type of person to fund that, right? Mm-hmm. So you know a lot of venture capitalists are in the business of doing that. But the ability to uh, detach from reality and also have like the propensity for action mm-hmm. to like. I'm going to go build it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just very, very unique. Uh, there are very few people in the world who can do it. So true. Um, I mean, I'm thinking there's probably I don't know, less than a thousand. Yeah. Right? You know, out yeah. of seven plus billion people oh, in the totally, world totally. that can actually detach from reality and then have a propensity for action. Now, I caveat all this with like the crypto people detached from reality have no propensity for action. Like, <laughs> like they're just buying shit yeah, and yeah. just, you know, crossing their yeah, fingers. Yeah. Um, but, but I do, uh, I do empathize a little yeah. bit in, in that, uh, that is a, a very unique ability. I, I would love for you to watch this video. All right. Uh, it's a recent video, George Hotz. Okay. H O T Z H O T Z. He was the original guy to like jailbreak the iPhone. He's like a really renowned hacker. Um, Brilliant dude. But he gave a talk at South by and um, it's about, uh, you know, I I, I don't want to give away too much about what it's about, but it's about like, you know, are we the whole idea of like, are we in a simulation? But I think when you hear this guy talk, he's on the level of Elon or, or, you know, fill in the blank, you know, Steve Jobs, et cetera, where he's just thinking on a level that uh, most people won't go to or would be afraid to take like take some stances publicly. And not only is he taking the stance, but he is the person you are describing. Like he is putting money and time and effort where his mouth is yep. towards like what sounds like the craziest thing you've ever heard but he's it's only crazy until it happens exactly right? watch the uh, video <laughs> the, the last thing i'm going to let you uh you plug here is uh before we got started you turned me on to uh, hunter s thompson oh yeah and uh we started watching videos uh we watched everything from him shooting at his neighbors on television to uh his daily routine uh maybe just give a quick two minutes on uh what your fascination there is and, and why he's uh he's so interesting i mean 
it's funny. It's it's almost like you kind of gave the perfect segue because all these people are kind of un unabashedly unique, you know, and, and and they're they're they to the outside, to the majority, to the mainstream, they're the total wackos, they're the weirdos, they're the outcasts. Um, and yet they are some of the most prolific creators, you know, and I think it's really hard. It's I mean, he, he you know, I actually want to take a moment to sh- make a shout out that like he killed himself. OK, oh, really? And so and, and the reason you I want to bring this up is suicide <laughs> prevention. Like, no, like, let's take a serious moment here. We're like, if you're one of those people where you feel like, oh, man, the whole world is against me. Everyone is is, you know, no one. Everyone's calling me crazy. Everyone mm-hmm. is calling me crazy. They're making fun of me. They're like, you know, whether they're trolling you on the Internet, whatever, um, you know, that. That has a very, very real impact. And I think it is not easy. Mm-hmm. It is not easy to to hold a conviction and, and to just be different. Mm-hmm. And I think like we need to have a better dialogue around like it's OK and you're going to get shit and you're going to take flack. But um, you sh- don't let that um, take you to that dark place. Don't ever let yourself go to that place. There's you can get help. And uh, I know, sorry, this is like a somber moment where it was going to make it funny. But he he, you know, he's an incredible individual. And it makes me so sad that we lost him. I, I just I loved his writing. I loved the person that he was. and I loved the independent thinker that he was. Uh, so I highly recommend people read some of his books or some of his short stories. Amazing guy. And, and watch the YouTube videos. And watch. You will crack up. And watch the YouTube videos, <laughs> whether it's Conan, Letterman, Day in the Life. You could go down a crazy Hunter S. Thompson rabbit hole. I guarantee you will. Uh, he also makes an appearance in uh, Electric Colloid Acid Tests. So. Uh, I was just gonna say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read mine illuminated. And I'm going to watch Hunter S. Thompson. You guys may, may never hear from me ever again. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, Tori, I appreciate you, uh, you taking time to do this. Uh, it's a ton of fun. And I'll have to do it again in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Are you curious about cryptocurrency and you don't know where to begin? I've got a great way for you to try. You can use Stormplay, a free and fun way to start earning in exchange for your time. That's right. You don't necessarily have to make a financial investment to begin. You can simply download, register, and then discover these micro tasks that they present you that meet your interest. And then you're rewarded with these storm bolts. The bolts are then converted and can be withdrawn into your favorite cryptocurrency, including the storm token, Ethereum, or my favorite Bitcoin. If you go and download the storm play app today, you can earn cryptocurrency rewards by playing new games and trying out cool new products. It's worth a try. And it's a great way to get started. Remember, go check out storm play in the app store today hey everyone pop here if you like this episode of off the chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the apple spotify and other podcast charts please do us a favor and rate review and subscribe to review simply go to the off the chain homepage scroll down until you see the five blank stars taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts i appreciate you listening and see you next time on off the chain